dear congregation, we've come in our study of baptism to the subject of who should be baptized or the subjects of baptism. Question 74 of our Heidelberg Catechism drives straight to the issue, straight to the disagreement that existed beginning at the time of the Reformation about who should be baptized. Should infants also be baptized? And the answer given us is yes, infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. And they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. Some of you might be groaning already at the title of the sermon and seeing what lies in store for you this evening. Another controversy that has carried on for so long and with such vigor and continues to the present day. That's why I want to open this sermon, my friends, by just making some remarks about this controversy. This controversy began around the time of the Reformation. Uh, it wasn't really uh, discussed much prior to that. And, and, and it has gotten nowhere to the present day. If you went and read the writings of Zwingli or of Luther, Calvin, you'd find many of the exact same arguments I'm going to give you this evening. And, and the Baptists have the exact same responses that, they, that the Anabaptists had in the time of the Reformation. Uh, it's really an argument that has progressed very little since that time. Shouldn't that already, my friends, and this is my point one on, my, on the outline there, fill us with a, with a measure of humility. That God in his providence has not chosen to make himself perfectly clear on this issue, I think we all have to grant. And just the existence of this controversy, and it's long, long, and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere, back and forth, uh, the, many of the same arguments being used. I'm not going to give you really anything new tonight that you probably haven't already heard. But I think it should fill us with a measure of humility when we approach this discussion. And that kind of leads me to my second point, is I don't believe that we should try to evangelize Baptist people. I don't think that it's appropriate or helpful even in the kingdom of God to try to win Baptists over to our way of thinking. Now, of course, any Baptist who wants to engage us in conversation, we should be able to respond. And we should respond. But it should not be a point, and that's why I use that word evangelize, it should not be a point of our, our witness to try to win Baptist, to, to come over to the pedo-Baptist way of thinking. That's not important. They're going to heaven just like you and I are. And, uh, and usually such a conversation um, uh, gets full of acrimony and even some bitterness. And then what's gained? The, the devil has gained, not, not God. Now, if you can carry on this discussion with a Baptist in a cool, calm, rational manner with an earnest desire to know what the Bible teaches, by all means, carry on that discussion. In fact, I would encourage you this evening to study this issue, not necessarily so you can you know, beat the Baptist at their argument, right? But because by studying this issue, you will be led to study so many things about the Bible you will learn so much about the Bible by studying this issue. And I know there's a number of you in the congregation this evening who have made a close study of this issue. 
and it's been a tremendous blessing to you. So if you can study this controversy with an aim to learning more about the scriptures for yourself and, yes, if you want to engage in a, in a, in a Baptist, if a Baptist challenges on this, you on this point, you want to be able to respond. But again, I do not think it's appropriate that we have as our intention to convert Baptist people to our way of thinking on this point. I really don't think it's important at all. I wish the other side would observe this principle as much as, as we do, I think. I chuckled when I read this quote from Charles Spurgeon, you know, a Reformed Baptist, a very famous preacher. He grew up in a Presbyterian household uh, that practiced infant baptism. In fact, uh, I believe Charles was baptized as an infant. And he, was, uh, he, he said in his autobiography, he writes, my mother said to me one day, ah, Charles, I often prayed the Lord to make you a Christian, but I never asked that you might become a Baptist. Well, Charles, with his tremendous sense of humor, responded, I could not resist the temptation to reply, Ah, Mother, the Lord has answered your prayer with his usual bounty and given you exceedingly abundantly above what you asked or thought. <laughs> so I think that sense of humor is so appropriate, right? I think that Mrs. Spurgeon, and I say this with tears, is going to be in heaven rejoicing that her husband or that her son is at her side. And I don't think she's going to be thinking, too bad he's a Baptist. And I can say that to my children this evening, and you can say that to your children, my friends, that praise God, hallelujah, if you're saved. If you're a Baptist, I'll let that alone. But if you're going to be with me in glory one day, that's what I really care about. So uh, maybe I'm not quite as strong on this issue as you'd like me to be, but I really believe that if we learned anything over the last 400 years of church history, it's that this issue continues, and it likely will continue, and it should give us a measure of humility. My third point is, young people especially in our midst this, this morning, you, mean, you must be very careful to get involved in this issue to the point where you think, I'm going to leave my church now because I'm no longer convinced on this issue. And again, the, these points are really all together, but sometimes it astonishes me to see 19, 20, 20-year-old 20 young people suddenly come to this conviction that paedo-baptism is all wrong. Now, first of all, let me just say that if you come to that conviction, I respect that. But again, over 400 years of God's people studying this issue, great men, Luther, Calvin, Kuiper, Bavink, Edwards, John Owen, all these men, right, and yes, there's as many good men on the Baptist side as well, but suddenly now you at age 20 have the answer? Again, I think it behooves you to be a little humble, to, to be a little in suspicion of your own ability to even uh, approach an issue like this. And sometimes I, I see 20, 21, 22-year-old men, women, marching out of a Reformed church and into a Baptist church and getting rebaptized. That's way too rash. You are not wise enough or, or, or read enough yet in the subject to make that decision. And so I, I would counsel you to exercise caution and delay and, and to think carefully and especially to, to give... Well, this is a story that, that I could repeat a thousand times. If I've heard it once, I've heard it so many times. That a young person goes out of our church and he has some friends and so he visits the Baptist church and he has a conversation with the pastor 
and the pastor will ask him just one question. Well, is there any way in the New Testament that the Bible commands children to be baptized? And the young, young man, young woman scratches their head and thinks, no, I, I can't think of any, and done. And they conclude immediately that pedo-baptism is wrong, and uh, it, it only, you know, we've been, my baptism means nothing, it was just water on the head, and, uh, and now I'm going to join the Baptist church. Again, my friends, I just ask you to consider, is, is that a rational course of action when this issue has been going back and forth in the Christian church for four centuries? And the best men in the, on the infant baptism side and the best men on the Baptist side, and yet you at 20, 25, are going to suddenly have the issue resolved? It, it, it's not rational. It, it's a, it's a, it's a, I have to say, it, it's a rash course of action. And then especially to get rebaptized and just to say that everything that happened up here was nothing? That, that's what you do, right? Be, be aware of that. When you choose to be rebaptized, you're saying that the baptism that took place, because Baptist and pedo-baptist, we all agree that a person should only be baptized once. So if you say, I'm going to become rebaptized, you're saying that what happened to me in the front of this church was a, a useless and, and, and vain flinging of water on my head. Nothing more, nothing less. Is that really what you want to say about, about that? Again, I have to say that, that that's, that's profoundly rash and a little foolish. My last point on this controversy as, as, I, as, I, as I enter into it is try hard, dear friends, not to polarize on this issue. Because another thing that is very dangerous for Christians to do is that a Baptist says this, and we immediately think we have to say the opposite. Let me tell you, my friends, that the more I study this issue, the more uh, uh, astonished I am at how much we have in common with our Baptist people, with, with our Baptist fellow Christians. There's a great deal that we have in common, a great deal. And the differences that divide us are not huge. And so let's be careful that when, well, I think, it was it last week that maybe some of you kind of raised your eyebrows when I said it, but I said that only disciples should be baptized. Sounds like a rather Baptistic thing to say, doesn't it? Well, I hope to show you that our infants are disciples. So even there, I think that we can even have a measure of agreement with Baptists to say that only disciples should be baptized. Now, granted, we define disciples somewhat differently. But there's a great deal, a great deal of common ground that we have with our Baptist brothers and sisters. And we have to be careful not to disagree with them on something that might be perfectly biblical, just because they're on the other side. So, I give you those four points. I'd be happy to discuss those more with you before we plunge into this discussion then of infant baptism. So should children receive the sign of baptism? We've said in our previous messages that baptism is an outward, visible sign of an inner spiritual reality. But that all the blessings of baptism are only given to those insofar as they are embraced by faith. That is the key ingredient, right? No faith, no blessing. Then it really is just an empty sacrament. In fact, it actually then becomes not just an empty sacrament, but becomes a reverse. It becomes a, a, a sacrament of judgment. But how can we give that sign to infants when they're not able at least to give us any indication that they have that kind of faith? And if we're going to insist that that faith is necessary, then should we not wait until they grow older, until they can give us some kind of credible uh, indication that they actually have faith? 
Well, that, that would be rational. That certainly seems to make sense. But is it biblical? Now, you'll notice, my friends, uh, that our catechism, and I want to stick to what the catechism uh, says here. Uh, there are other arguments for infant baptism, but we'll stick with the ones that are given us here. That the catechism says that infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. And they no less than adults are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. So the first question that I want to investigate with you then is this question, are infants included in God's covenant? That's the question I want to take up because the catechism has said that they are included. And it simply stands to reason that if they are included that they should receive the sign of that covenant. By the way, I, I didn't really plan this, but the sermon this morning uh, fits so well with the sermon this evening, right? Because this morning we talked about that sign in Genesis 17 of circumcision that was given to Abraham and his family to remind them and to seal to them the promise of God's covenant. But this is the question then that is before us. Are infants included in God's covenant? And my friends, let me also say here, the only thing that matters here is what the Bible says. The only thing that matters is what the Bible says. I'm, we don't make our appeal to anything else. And I know our Baptist brothers and sisters insist on this point with as much vigor as we do. We only care about what the Bible teaches. And where the Bible goes, we go. And so let's be clear on that. That's our common ground. Now, are infants included in God's covenant? In the first place, we can say that they certainly were included in Abraham's covenant. And it just happens so to be that we studied Abraham's covenant this morning. And I didn't make a, a lot of reference to it, but in Genesis 17, we saw that God commanded, God commanded Abraham to apply the sign of the covenant to his children. I don't really need to turn there and read it because it's so clearly given to us in Genesis 17 and verse 9, and you can read that for yourself, that God commanded Abraham to put the sign of the covenant upon all of his male descendants. So they were included in Abraham's covenant, which then gives rise to the question, in what covenant are we? What covenant are we participants in? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? Now the Baptist would come and say, well, we are in the new covenant, the new covenant, and they are certainly correct on that point. The Bible clearly teaches, especially in the prophets, that God was going to make a new covenant with his people, that he was going to bring an end to the Sinai covenant, the covenant that he made with the children of Israel, with all its laws and all its regulations. That covenant was going to come to an end. God was going to bring that to an end with the coming of Jesus, and a new covenant was going to begin. But now I take you back to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15, and my friends, I think it would be very helpful if you followed me here, because this chapter is a very, very, well, it's a very difficult chapter to follow. But if you can try to understand with me here what Paul is teaching in Galatians 3 and verse 15, he begins this line of thought. He says, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. So he's going to say, in our terms, I'm going to give you an example from everyday life. Even though it is only a man's covenant, and again, think in our day of a contract, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the, the idea here is something we're all very familiar with, that when a contract is made and duly ratified, you can't change it afterward. You can't modify it or, or delete it. Whatever the, 
whatever the conditions that you agreed to, you have to abide by them. You can't go to a hotel and agree to buy uh, two rooms for $75 a night, and then at the end of your stay, come downstairs and say, I'm only willing to pay 50. No, the contract was been agreed on, you signed it. It's the end of the story. You can't change the conditions. And this is what Paul is saying. Now, Paul's very fruitful mind goes on a different tangent on verse 16. He, he begins to think about something else. That's how Paul thinks. But go to verse 17 with me, because Paul, Paul returns to his original thought. Galatians 3, verse 17. What I am saying is this. The law, and by law there, think about the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. The law, which came 430 years later, in other words, later than God's covenant with Abraham, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. What Paul is saying here is that God made a covenant with Abraham 430 years before he made a covenant with Israel. So this covenant that came later cannot change or invalidate the terms of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, it can, it can, it can be a new covenant that God makes with his people with its own strictures and its own terms, right? But it can't change or invalidate what God promised to Abraham. And what Paul is now going to say is, in verse 18, for if the inheritance, and again, there's that word inheritance, I, I mentioned that this morning. In other words, if all the things that God promised to Abraham is based on law or law-keeping, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Verse 19, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. And, uh, and, and it was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until, and there's a key word, my friends, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. In other words, the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai was temporary. It was a temporary covenant that God placed upon Israel for reasons that are explained in that verse. I won't go into that, but at any rate, it was a temporary covenant. And when, the, when God had realized his purpose with that covenant, he lifted it up. He took it away. It was rendered invalid. It, was, it became obsolete, it says in the book of Hebrews. When the seed came, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. When Christ came in the flesh, the, the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai was removed. And what does that leave then? It leaves God's covenant with Abraham. And now Paul's point is that we are participants in Abraham's covenant. So this new covenant that the Baptists often like to speak of certainly is correct. There is a new covenant. But let's understand that it's not an entirely new covenant. It is more correctly called a renewed covenant because it is simply the covenant of Abraham brought over into the Christian dispensation. In other words, Abraham's covenant was before Christ, but Abraham's covenant in the new covenant is, is, looking, is looking, I'm sorry, Abraham, the first Abraham's covenant in Genesis 12 looks forward to Christ, but now in the new covenant it looks back upon Christ. But that, my friends, is the only difference. We are participants in Abraham's covenant. So it matters when I said there are infants included in God's covenant. Well, they were included in Abraham's covenant. That is not a debatable point. We are explicitly told that. 
But my friends, the point that the Reformed always wanted to make was that we are participants in Abraham's covenant. What further proof do we have of that? Well, the text for this morning, or the text for this evening, is the very last verse of Galatians 3 and verse 29. Would you read that with me? Galatians 3, 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Heirs, that means you are going to inherit all the promises that God made to Abraham. Well, what if I'm not actually a biological descendant of Abraham? Paul says that doesn't matter. If you are a believer in Jesus, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you are Abraham's children. You are in Abraham's covenant. That's why he calls them Abraham's children. Being a child of Abraham means being a participant in Abraham's covenant. Again, my friends, I belabor this point to establish the fact that infants are included in Abraham's covenant. And we, in the new covenant, or the renewed covenant, are still in Abraham's covenant. And therefore, our children should still receive the sign of the covenant. Now, the objection that a Baptist may bring is that uh, the Israelites were circumcised. Israelites were circumcised, but every Israelite was commanded to be circumcised, not just the believers. Now, that's a good point. But what did circumcision mean? Because Baptists will often insist that circumcision was simply a mark of being an Israelite. Even to this day, uh, again, many Baptists do not say this, but some Baptists continue to insist that circumcision was simply a sign of being a physical Israelite. And that's why I gave you Romans 4 and verse 11 there, where we are explicitly told what circumcision means. And Paul teaches us that circumcision is a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. So Abraham was circumcised. What did that mean? It was a seal of the righteousness which he had by faith. Basically, his circumcision was a seal of his justification, of his being right with God. It was not just a mark of being an Israelite. You see, circumcision was parallel to baptism. Circumcision was a visible sign of an invisible grace. And in the same way, baptism is a visible sign of an invisible grace. A second objection that is made uh, is that the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant God made with Abraham, was not the same as the new covenant. And again, in a sense, that's true. Abraham looked forward to Christ, right? In the new covenant, we look back on Christ. But still, Galatians 3 very clearly teaches us that when we are believers, we are Abraham's children. We are participants in Abraham's covenant. Abraham's covenant is the covenant of grace. And therefore, we give the covenant sign to our infant children. The, the sign has changed, right? And I think that's part, by the way, of Abraham looked forward, and so the sign given to Abraham and to Israel was a bloody sign, circumcision. Now we have an unbloody sign because we look back upon what is already finished. So there are, I'm not saying there aren't differences between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant, but by and large, they are one covenant as Paul sees them with differences because of when they, were, uh, when they occurred. Now, I have to keep moving here. That's the first question. The second question, my friends, that the catechism puts before us 
has baptism replaced circumcision? Now, there's only one text in the New Testament that really teaches this explicitly, and that is Colossians 2, verse 11. Again, if you can turn there in your Bible with me to Colossians 2. Colossians 2 is a, is a wonderful chapter, and I want to begin uh, by answering, answering this question, has baptism replaced circumcision? Turn with me to Colossians 2 and verse 10. Colossians 2 and verse 10. And the apostle writes to the church in Colossae, and in him, that is in Christ, you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. In Christ, every believer is complete. In Christ, every believer has everything that they need. We lack nothing when we are joined to Jesus Christ. But, says a Gentile believer, I'm not circumcised. Doesn't that matter? Maybe I'm not as complete in Christ as I think I am. Because after all, I don't have that sign that all my Jewish believer friends talk about of being circumcised. And again, many of the Jewish believers were still insisting that you had to be circumcised. Paul says we're complete in Christ. But there's this nagging doubt in the mind of a Gentile. I'm not circumcised. And what does Paul say? In verse 11, essentially he says, Oh, but you are circumcised. And you know by now where this is going, right? Verse 11, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Ah, there's the reality, right? You might not be physically circumcised, but a circumcision made without hands by the Spirit of God upon your soul. You are circumcised. Let me finish the verse. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh. Again, that's a reference to our sin nature. It was cut off. Just like in circumcision, something was cut off. The foreskin was cut off. Here, your sin nature is cut off by the circumcision of Christ or by the circumcision with Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism. Now, my friends, I want to take you to this chart that I gave you in, in, on the outline. Because this chart breaks this down, or at least I tried to break it down for you, phrase by phrase in this verse, so you can see what, what the, the teaching of this text is. And this is the, the, the verse that the Catechism is using to establish this point, that baptism has replaced circumcision. Now, the main clause give us, given us there is Paul says, you were circumcised. To those who may be doubting whether they're really complete in Christ, Paul says, well, you are circumcised. Now, in the box there next to it, you can write, when? When were you circumcised? Well, you were circumcised in him. In other words, when you were joined to Christ by the Spirit of God, when you were joined to Christ, united to him, you were circumcised. That's the when. How were you circumcised? That's the next block. With a circumcision made without hands. Right? This is not talking about a physical surgery. This is talking about a spiritual heart surgery. How? with a circumcision made without hands. What was the result? That's the third block there. What was the result of that spiritual circumcision? It was the removal of the body of the flesh. Again, in Paul's lang language, the removal of our sin nature. Our sin nature was cut off. That's the result of this spiritual circumcision. Now, by the circumcision of Christ, this phrase 
is a bit difficult. Does it mean that Christ performed the circumcision? I, I incline less to that idea because the rest of the Bible talks about the Spirit of God performing this circumcision. Uh, I incline more to this idea by the circumcision with Christ. In other words, when Christ was circumcised, and, and of course, again, not even just his literal circumcision, but his whole life and especially his death of suffering, when he was literally cut off from the favor of God the Father on the cross. Again, I, I could say more about that. But by the circumcision of Christ, by the circumcision of Christ, and then the last one, the last one, having been buried with him in baptism. You see, what Paul does now, and by the way, all these phrases go back grammatically to that main clause, you were circumcised. But now Paul says, I know you're not physically circumcised, Gentile believers, but you are spiritually circumcised. And in fact, there is this parallel reality or this parallel ritual to circumcision. And it's when you were baptized. So if I put this very succinctly, again, you have a Gentile believer who says, I'm not sure that I'm complete in Christ because I'm not circumcised. And Paul, in a sense, comes and says, oh, but you are circumcised. You were circumcised when you were baptized. That is a legitimate deduction from this verse. And again, I, that's why I represented this for you in that clausal structure there, trying to put it phrase by phrase. You were circumcised when you were baptized, is the teaching of Paul in this verse. Now, the Baptists quickly respond by saying, yes, but... But it's spiritual circumcision here. Yes, indeed, but don't forget the larger context, right? The Gentile Christian thinking that because he lacks physical circumcision, he lacks something. He's not complete in Christ. And Paul says, well, don't worry about the physical circumcision. You are spiritually circumcised. And again, all those phrases go back. They're all describing what it means to be circumcised. But don't forget the last one. You were spiritually circumcised when you were baptized. And again, as I said Last Sunday, right, this, this baptism here is the whole baptism, right? The, the outer sign, but also that inner reality. Keeping that together. When you were baptized by the Spirit of God into Jesus Christ, you were circumcised. And so, my friends, we have here uh, what is a very clear, and again, even some Baptists will now grant this truth, that there is a clear parallel between circumcision as an outward sign of an inner reality and baptism as an outward sign of an inner reality. And Paul now puts these things side by side. And he says, if you're worried that you're not circumcised and that therefore, in some sense, you're deficient as a Christian, don't let that bother you for one minute. The real thing that matters is that spiritual circumcision, not made with physical hands. And in fact, baptism is a picture of that as well. Having been buried with him in baptism. And yes, again, I will freely admit to the Baptist that the picture here is immersion. Having been buried with him, having been buried with him into the water, and coming up out of that water again. Now, I don't think immersion is the only way, right, that the Bible talks about baptism, but certainly here, that is the picture given us, of being immersed or dipped into water and being brought up out of it again. Again, remember one of the principles I gave you is, let's not be polarized here. Let's not miss the significance, that does appear to be a reference to immersion. And I'm not going to say that it's not immersion just because I'm not a Baptist. 
Okay, so circumcision has replaced baptism. I trust that you can answer that question now, my friends, by a close look at Colossians 2 and verse 11. Now, two applications, one to the children and a second one to the parents. Children, we started out the service by talking that you would not forget the works of God. Now, that was a mighty work of God when your parents brought you forward here and before you even could understand what was taking place. They brought you under the waters of baptism. And that baptism is a picture, isn't it? A visible sign of what God in his mercy... Don't see the pastor. Don't think of the pastor. Don't say, well, I was baptized by Pastor Inglesman. No, that's so unimportant. You were baptized in a church. And that was a visible representation of God's saving mercy to you. You were spiritually circumcised when you were baptized. And what a wonderful privilege that is. That means, dear children, that it's not necessary in your life that you pass through a a whole variety of conversion experiences of this and of that and, and things, right? That means from your youngest days, you can love the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the picture I love the picture of a child when, when he or she is walking and they get into something that's a little bit intimidating to them and they take their father's hand. And that's the faith, dear children, that God calls for you tonight. To place your hand in the hand of your father. You might say that in your baptism, God has already reached out to you. The hand of his love and his fatherly mercy. And he says, now children, put your hand in mine. And that, that you don't have to be 10 years old to do that, or 15 from your youngest days. How we love to think that there would never be a day in the life of our children when they don't remember loving Jesus Christ and serving him. I know sometimes we, we, we like to talk about people who go through massive conversion experiences. They are converted from the, as they used to say, from the bar room to the church, right? From a life of sin and debauchery. And, and yes, those are wonderful stories. But there's a much better story. There's a much better story. And that is the child that from his or her mother's knee loves the Lord and grows up year after year, walking with God, denying himself, taking up the cross that Christ puts on him and following Jesus. That's a much more beautiful story. And we pray that for each of our children. Truly, children, you can sing, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. But remember, and especially this to the older children amongst us, that that promise is only to faith. That promise is only to those who put their hand in the hand of their father. That promise is not something that just comes to you by osmosis or just automatically. You just grow up in the church and so somehow you just have these things. No, it requires faith. Only faith. Don't add anything to it now, but faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Parents, how should we view our children? This is a question that has been uh, vigorously uh, debated back and forth in Reformed circles. Uh, In my old work uh, back in Grand Rapids, uh, this discussion went back and forth. Should we understand our children to be Christians. You know that one of the great leaders in our church was Abraham Kuyper, right, who, who, who gets in a lot of hot water for, 
for teaching the doctrine of presumptive regeneration. And so this question comes up. I actually don't think, my friends, that the two sides are as far apart as we often think. Again, there's a lot of polarizing that happens here. But how should we think of our children? Now, I think based on what we learned this evening that we should think of our children as Christians. We should think of them and give them the judgment of charity that they are what their children are. They are what their parents are. That what the parents are, the children are. So if you want to call that presumptive regeneration, uh, that's fine with me. Just so long as we don't, we don't have a naive, unthinking kind of presumption. Because that can land a person in hell. And again, it's the same thing that I just said to the children. That all the blessings represented to us in baptism come only to those who have faith in those promises. So it is necessary to believe in Jesus Christ, to take hold of those promises by faith. So, so can, we, can we have an assumption that our children are Christians as they are baptized and as they grow up in the faith? Yes. I think we could say yes. Perhaps you disagree with that, but I would say yes. But again, let it not be a naive presumption. And, and let us make sure our children understand these things that God only makes these promises to faith, to those who believe. You know that so much of the Bible is written against people who had this kind of naive presumption that they were Christians just because they were baptized. The prophets in the Old Testament are constantly preaching against Israel because Israel thinks that because they are Israelites, they have some kind of claim on God's favor. And the prophets say, no, unless you repent, you're also going to perish. Jesus struggled with this in his own day, right? When people said, we are, we're the sons of Abraham. And Jesus said, so what? God can raise from these stones children to Abraham. It's not being a son of Abraham biologically that matters. It's being a son of Abraham because you believe in Christ that matters. And so this is the, this is the truth. And I know there are people in Reformed circles who, who, well, there are many people who I used to work with who used to teach a presumptive unregeneration that would teach that we shouldn't uh, regard our children as Christians until they give some kind of evidence otherwise. Now, I, I disagree with that approach. However, if that is your approach, uh, I, I can respect that. And, and Because, again, the important thing is faith. But I think based on what we learned this evening, that the Scriptures would understand that we raise our children as Christians. Our expectation is that you will be Christian. And our expectation is that you will be a Christian from your youngest days. That as soon as your mind is capable of understanding these things, you'll take hold of the promise of salvation. That's the teaching of the Reformed churches. By the way, my friends, uh, the Catechism really teaches that quite clearly as well, right? It says infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and his people. If, that, if, that, if, that, if we take that language as the author intended it, he means that children also are Christians, not just adults, and that they can be considered to be such. So that's the teaching of the Catechism. It's also uh, the teaching, really, of the vast majority of the great men that we respect in the Reformed churches. By the way, I'll, as I bring this to a close, I, I have an article that I'd be happy to share with you by Hermann Witsius, the great Dutch Reformed author of a previous generation, uh, who writes an article on this. It's somewhat difficult to read, but it's still very, very interesting. 
And you can read that and, and, and see what a wise, careful, godly man he was on this issue. So, my friends, again, we, we end this sermon where we've ended all these sermons on baptism, and this is the last sermon on baptism. My friends, it's my earnest prayer that, that, uh, that the sign of baptism would always lead us back to the Lord Jesus Christ. If the sign of baptism leads us to bypass the cross, then it does become just a naive presumption that could land us in hell eternally. But when baptism does its work in our life, it brings us to Jesus. It brings us to the Savior, the only one who can cleanse us from sin. And so, my friends, I close this series on baptism by urging you with all the power that God has placed upon me as a minister of the gospel to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you at the close of this sermon. Lord, this has been such a controversial issue in the churches. And uh, we've raised these two questions, Lord, and tried to answer them from your word. Uh, but Lord, uh, we know that uh, all the same, uh, the controversy will continue. The divide will continue. But Lord, we do pray that between brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would never allow this divide to become something that would become bitter and sinful. Oh, how happy the devil is when there are bitter disputes between Christians on issues uh, that divide them. Lord, may it never be said of us, but we do pray that you would give us light on your word, that you would especially, Lord, give us to remember, to see our baptism, and to be led by it to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, if there are any here in this congregation who are presuming on their baptism, who think that they are saved or have some claim on God's favor simply because they were baptized as in their youth, Lord, I pray that you would dash that to pieces, that you would show them the true meaning of the waters of baptism, and that it might bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might be saved. Lord, we pray in a special way for our children this evening. Lord, we love to see our children growing older and maturing in the faith of the gospel. Lord, I pray that we might see it, and that we might continue to see it. And we thank you, Lord, so much for those examples in our church where we do see it. And we pray that you'd continue to work in children, especially when they come near and when they come to their teenage years and the pressures of life become so strong to pull them, to draw them away from the truth of the gospel, Lord, we pray that their baptism and the covenant, which is it a sign of, would bind them to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be resolved firmly to follow Christ and never to walk away from him. Lord, we earnestly pray this and ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Let's turn in the red hymnal. I'm going to change this. And we're going to sing uh, number 478 in the red hymnal. 478, which is Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. The five verses of 478 in the Red Hymnal.
the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.